Episode 16. Today is a triple wide episode where we go to the movies. First up is Crazy Rich Asians. Then we take a break to discuss the prison strike. And we have a Black Klansman versus Sorry to Bother You movie throwdown. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo, and I say we should get started. You know what? I can't complain. So I, I, I hear that you spent the weekend at the movies. Yeah, I saw uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which is the, I believe, one of the top box office hits of, of the weekend, which I, I usually don't do, but you asked me to come on and talk about it, so it really it lit a fire under me to, to go see it right away. Well, let's talk about it. So what, what's okay. Crazy Rich Asians all about? Well, it's like you're... It's a, it's, you know, if you strip away, uh, the fact that it is, you know, this, it is a big deal that, you know, it's an all Asian cast in this film. Um, and I just kind of want to make a note of like, I kind of use Asian and Asian American interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's something that when I was younger, you know, and I was first getting to Asian American advocacy, uh, it was very important for me to make that distinction. But, um, a lot of, actually a lot of work I've done with um, immigrant rights communities. Um, and, I, and I realize that the line is kind of blurred there. So, um, you know, I'm not intentionally misspeaking uh, when, I, when I say Asian versus Asian American. But, um, you know, it, it's, you know, very typical rom-com. Not my cup of tea, but it was done really well. And I thought the acting was really good in it. Um, I love Constance Wu um, and I love Aquafina. So the fact that, you know, if you put two of them in a movie, I'm going to, Go see it. Um, initially, I think this was something I was going to kind of save for Netflix. Um, you know, having a kid at home, I don't often see the new movies coming out. But, uh, you know, I'm glad I did, you know, because this is definitely a, a cultural experience um, for people of color, um, specifically for Asians and Asian Americans. Um, and I'm having some interesting conversations about it. So it's kind of like its importance right now is kind of like the Asian Black Panther. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really the remarkable thing. You know, obviously I'm not a capitalist because I'm on the show, but, um, you know, if we're looking at, uh, numbers, um, you know, Black Panther and, you know, did better than, you know, the white led, uh, action films and crazy rich Asians did better than a lot of the white led, um, rom-coms. So, you know, it's interesting to see that there is definitely an audience for people of color in leading roles, I'm not playing, you know, stere background stereotypes. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, these events mean something. Um, do, do I know for sure? I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, thinking of like the Joy Luck Club when that came out. And I didn't realize until, you know, I did a little research for um, this segment. And, you know, that movie came out 25 years ago. Yeah. I, for some reason, thought it came out like 10 maybe 15 years ago. 
so, you know, there's a lot of conversation about within a lot of Asian American circles whether or not Crazy Rich Asians is going to be, you know, a sea change. And, um, you know, I wish I had a more authoritative answer on that, but I really don't know. Like, you know, in the early 90s, there was the Joy Luck Club, which came out, and that was supposed to be the, the, the sea change. And then we were going to see Asian Americans in movies playing, uh, you know, characters of, of depth, not just, you know, martial artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, right around that time, Margaret Cho, who I stand for, Margaret Cho is one of the people that very early on um, was a, you know, was that kind of representation that I really wanted to see. Um, when she had her own sitcom that came out around the same time, uh, that sitcom actually was very problematic too. Like yes. the whole idea was she wanted to do a sitcom like Jerry Seinfeld had a sitcom called Seinfeld. Roseanne Barr had a sitcom called Roseanne. She wanted to have the Margaret Cho show. And she was talking to producers and the producers were like, no, we want to call it the, uh, a walk W O K on the wild side or, you know, some sort of chopsticks pun or something mm-hmm. like that. So it was like a constant struggle. I think it lasted one season um, where they wanted to make, you know, a lot of the hokey Asian American jokes be the, the focus of the show. And she really wanted it to show like the depth of an Asian American family. Um, and then we didn't see anything for years. Like we, there was not an all Asian American sitcom until uh, fresh off the boat just premiered like a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to how Hollywood deals with Asians. Like obviously in the beginning it was super like offensive and stereotypical mm-hmm. and, you know, you would like have white people play Asians and then you kind of get, I would say like after that, even recent, more recently, there's always like this cooning kind of, for lack of a better word, like Mm -hmm. cooning Asian kind of thing that happens. Um, As much as I loved Harold and Kumar, you know, you got a little bit of that, you know, Amos and Andy, Oh man, what's happening? You know? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, hey, Cal Penn returned and did awesome with the namesake, which is, I think, is an Asian movie people forget. Um, mm-hmm. But, all right, so with this movie, Crazy Rich Asians, it's a rom-com. What are some of the themes of it? Is it, you know, is it violent? Is there action? Is it there sex? Is there, you know, revolution? <laughs> Very much like, you know, star-crossed lovers, you know, two people from different, back, vastly different backgrounds fell in love. Uh, you know, I have to say, like, initially when I found out, that I, I have to admit I haven't read the book, but when the title came out of the movie and there was heavy promotion, I just thought, well, why can't we have, you know, a movie about working-class Asians? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why can't that be our big entry into into Hollywood uh, for this this time like you know if you look at numbers Asian Americans on um, the aggregate aren't necessarily doing as well as the stereotype that precedes us go um, and that those are stories that are almost never told like every time you know I think of Asians in movies um, you know it's either you know a karate 
type character or it's, you know, someone of, of affluence of some sort. And um, I don't think that, and, and so I kind of recoiled at the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they did show there is some, that there are class issues within Asians, um, between Asians, I thought that was interesting. Uh, and it does, does show kind of uh, common threads with other cultures, like class is always there, no matter what race you are, uh, you know, class is always going to, to divide people. And, you know, that was very apparent, uh, in the film. Um, it, in some ways it reminded me a lot of coming to America and mm. just the whole idea of, uh, they, they really downplayed the fact that the leading man, um, you know, kind of posed as being, I don't think working class, they didn't really get into a lot of detail about, their burgeoning romance before the film took place. But, um, they, uh, he kind of hid the fact that he was a super wealthy, um, essentially, you know, part of this colonizer family, uh, which they also didn't really get into at all in the film, um, in Singapore, uh, the, this ultra rich Chinese family in Singapore, but he was kind of faking being a little, uh, not as affluent. I'm not, it wasn't very clear, you know, how not rich he, he posed as, when he was wooing um, Constant Wu's character, uh, mm. no, no pun intended at all. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but um, you know, but it's very similar to Coming to America, uh, where Prince Akeem is pretending to be, um, you know, or he he acts like he doesn't have any money, so he works for McDonald's, um, and it's it's kind of the same. You know, spoiler alert. Maybe turn this down a little bit. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but. Um, also, because I'm telling you that this is like a very template kind of driven rom-com, like we can, you can kind of assume that the, happy, the ending is happy and it's like race or I'm sorry, class issues are kind of absolved mm. because you need to have a Hollywood happy ending, uh, which I'm a bit conflicted about because I think in some ways it is probably good for Asian Americans to have like a very stereotypical Hollywood film, but at the same time, you know, that isn't the world. Um, and one thing they totally glossed over in the film was the fact that the ultra rich family were, was a Chinese family that, um, were one of the families that caught one of the, uh, main, uh, you know, groups of capitalists that colonized Singapore. And, uh, they don't at all in the movie touch on the, you know, the racism, uh, that Muslims and Hindus in Singapore experience, uh, at the hands of, uh, the, of, of Chinese and the fact that, you know, they have, um, you know, their own version of like kind of blackface humor where it's targeted at Hindus and Muslims wow. in Singapore. Uh, you don't see that at all. And it's in some ways though, it's very much like, you know, a white rom-com then, you know, you have these star crossed lovers, obviously a white rich family, in this country had to do some bad stuff, <laughs> uh, to get there. Um, and you know, this is indigenous land that has been colonized, you know, in the United States. Um, so unfortunately it does have a lot of parallels to your typical white rom-com. Um, but yeah, the film t- completely glosses over it. You know, at the same time, if they address these class issues and, and the racism in Singapore, it would be an entirely different film. From what I understand, I'm hearing a critique that they don't, it's kind of a shallow movie in some ways. I think it's an extremely shallow movie. Uh, and 
I, but I also do feel that like, there's probably some truth to the fact that representation matters. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I hope no one's going to this movie thinking that this is like an accurate depiction of life in Singapore. Um, you know, this is probably the 0.01% of Singapore that's depicted in the film. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's there just for, for like a fairy tale kind of film and you have to, to enjoy it. I think you have to kind of ignore, um, those politics behind it. Yeah. And apparently that's pissing Frida off with the, it's, you know, it glosses over that. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I had a, I had a suspicion. I was like, when I just saw the title, it was like one of those movie titles that was almost designed to bait me. You know, like, oh, okay, Crazy Rich Asians. And I almost recoiled, like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this. This is going to be, like, I felt that it was going to be as if I'm watching an Asian version of the Jersey Shore. I'm glad it's not that. <laughs> But I was like, oh, shit, man, this is not going to be great. So let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend for people to go out and see it? Or would you say wait till the kid's on Netflix or not see it? I would say wait till it gets on Netflix. If you're a big fan of, of rom-coms and that's what you're going to get out of it, then probably, you know, you'd want to go see it in the theater. Uh, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a fan of the genre. Um, and the fact that I did have that voice in the back of my head saying there's so much they're glossing over in here that um, someone who can't turn off that voice might not want to see this movie. Yeah. <laughs> or at least, you know, wait till Netflix. So if you're too woke, <laughs> this is not your movie. Uh-huh. Awesome. I, I have to say, like, the performances were good. Um, I... I love Aquafina. I think if if this movie is able to launch her her music career further and more people can hear her music, um, then uh, I would. I think that that in itself of itself is really good. Um, she's a hilarious rapper from uh, Chinatown in New York, uh, who plays like a supporting role in here. I think Constant Wu is great. Uh, Fresh off, I was a fan of Fresh Off the Boat, the show that she's on. Mm -hmm. Initially, when it first came out, I feel like the first season of the show was very much like it really did depict Asian American life well, especially like Asian Americans living in a town where they're the only Asian American family. That's something I can relate to. And then every subsequent season has become like just a sitcom, and they just happen to be Asian. And it's kind of the same critique I have with, with Crazy Rich Asians. Like, I'm not really seeing all the nuances of what it what it means to be Asian and the impacts on that. Uh, and I'd like to see a little bit more depth like that in in, in uh, depictions. Okay, cool. Well, hopefully Hollywood is listening to us, <laughs> demanding so too. yeah Asian movies with more substance. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Let's fuck it. I think there's a lot of bullshit out there. So just movies with substance. But Absolutely. definitely Asian movies and Asians that are in roles that would be not traditionally, you know, booked by an Asian actor. Yeah, people have been asking me about this film, saying, like, do I think it's going to be good? 
for Asians and Asian Americans. And I just say, I don't know. Like, I think time will tell. And I think having these critiques are really good. It's really good to have all these critiques out there, having people debate the issue. I don't think, you know, there, there's some like sort of unspoken assumption that when someone, when someone says like this movie isn't an accurate portrayal, they're saying, well, this movie shouldn't have been made. Like, I'm not saying that, but you know, what I'm saying is this movie uh, doesn't tell the whole story. And maybe this is some sort of opening now through criticism for us to tell these stories. I can't, I can't say that any better. So thank you, Kenzo. Oh, thanks, Brandon. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Yeah, definitely. Byron, I hear there's a prison strike. Yes, it's going on right now as we are recording on the 21st. Damn, I, I just dated us. No, that's fine. That's fine. Because it's <laughs> we're, we're putting this one out hot. This is a hot take. Yay. <laughs> so, what do you know about what's happening with this prison strike? Well, it's kind of like it says on the TED. Uh, it is a strike, but in prison. Um, it's been organized. They've been organizing this for a while now. Um, it was originally, um, it's pr- primarily two groups. It's the jailhouse lawyers speak um, who are is like a prison support group, and then it's the IWOC, which is the uh, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee or Council, um, which is an offshoot of the IWW, which should not surprise anybody that the IWW got on this because they are the only people who are really worth like willing to organize, you know, non-conventional workers like prison labor. Hmm. Um, actually, it all started. This whole thing like started when I think there was a riot in a maximum security prison in South Carolina that, like, uh, mainly over, like, living conditions and, uh, like, just the fact they get paid so little uh, for labor that, like, I think seven, like, I think seven or eight people died <laughs> in, in the whole thing, like, when it was, like, over. Um, and that really, like, sparked something, like, okay, we need to pay attention to this. This is, like, something serious. It's, like, a good amount of, like, human labor being used in, in like basically slave-like conditions, because um, again, like it, if you read the Fourteenth Amendment, like it says, okay, slavery is bad except for if they commit a crime, in which case you know that leads into a whole other thing. But well, I want to stay at least for now on on this. Yeah, um, I just want to kind of clarify because I know you're like it's kind of like slave-like conditions. It is slavery. Yeah, it, it, it kind of – well, I would consider it more like a sharecropper, which is in itself an adaptation of slavery. Except for the fact that a sharecropper, if they have the means, they can fucking leave. And yeah, the prison they have that. And they also have the coercive power of the state to make them fucking work. But now that I think about it, if anything, it's more like serfdom, which, is, which again is just another form of slavery. Yeah. Because they literally cannot leave. They are tied to the prison. Tied to the prison, all while they're making watches for Walmart or something. Yeah, or or fucking jeans. Like that's like a really big industry that they that they participate in is clothing. You might be wearing prison clothes, like prison made clothes. Yeah, that's 
That's that's fucking disgusting to think about. And I like my jeans. But um, they they had a bunch of demands, a list of ten demands that they would like to have made real. What are some of them? Um, so I think probably the uh, the first one um, I just brought up the list of demands right here. I had a handy. Uh, immediate improvements to conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of the imprisoned men and women. Um, this is just a big overall, hey, remember, we're like humans, and we're only supposed to be here for like a few years and leave. <laughs> uh, so please remember that. Uh, because, uh, you know, the, if you remember the old uh, Stanford prison experiment, yeah. uh, the, pr- uh, the prisoners almost immediately get treated like subhumans. Uh, by by the guards who have like like literally like practically almost life and death power over these prisoners, um, and they abuse it like almost immediately because that's what power because power literally fucks with your brain and like turns you into a sociopath. Like it, it, that's just the, the fact nowadays. Um, second, an immediate end to prison slavery, uh, mainly because uh, that that's mainly uh, a reference to the fact that. Uh, if you work in prison, they are like literally forced to give you a wage. They can't just make you do free labor. But uh, what they can do is pay you under minimum, like under minimum wage. And that usually results in like cents per hour, like type of labor. Um, and usually, there's like get to buy stuff inside the prison, uh, like extra food, or if you want to call someone, you have to like they charge you a fuck ton of money. Yeah. Uh, you know, like just. Like, they just raise the prices of everything else inside, uh, specifically so, like, what money you do get from labor, you have to spend it on that. So you literally, much like sharecropping, it's like a cycle of, like, being paid and then using up all of it. Um, If anything, collecting debt by the end of it. Yeah. Um, Third is prison litigation reform. Um, This is specifically to make it easier for prisoners to have a proper channel of, like, Hey, this guard beat me unjustly, or you know they're torturing us, or you know conditions aren't aren't up to standard in this one prison. Uh, they have a way of like some sort of official channel to go to that won't fuck them over immediately. Whether or not that actually happens, knowing how the state is like run and just how inherently fucked up the prison system is, I don't know. But uh, it's one thing they're they are like aiming for. Uh, fourth, the Truth and Sentencing Act and Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. Uh, no human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. Um, this is specifically for those like life in prison um, or like you know people who get like too hungry, like people who just are like sent to prison to die like of old age, yeah. like. The thinking is on this one is that, you know, you're in prison for like 50 fucking years and like you like that's a long time for someone to change and improve themselves. So what's uh, the next one? Uh, the next one is an immediate end to racial overcharging, oversentencing and parole denials for black and brown pe- uh, humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because of the victims of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in southern states. This is very much a racist holdover from uh, the 14th Amendment passing with that one clause saying, oh, but, you know, the slavery but uh, clause. 
Um, that it's six an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. This this specifically like is something I can definitely like uh, look at and see how it affects me personally, even outside of prison. Uh, mainly because um, I live in Santa Ana. It's like uh, we have like gang injunctions, uh, basically just areas of the city where if you like commit a crime uh, and you're even like remotely connected, which if you live here, like it's like you know someone who at least knows someone. Like, that's literally as far as you need to go. Yeah. Um, who are in some sort of gang, and it primarily targets... It's primarily used to target black and brown people. That's just the, the plain end of it. And the thing is, like, specifically because it's, like, real, like, uh, specifically gang injunctions, it's not like they're going after, like, fucking, you know, you know, white-collar organized crime. They're not going after them because, you know, they're usually committed by white people. Then who gives a fuck about that? And, and they're rich, so who gives a fuck about that? Yeah. Uh, uh, seventh is no imprisoned human shall be denied access to re- rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of their labels of violent offender. This is again very much from the more Scandinavian uh, form of rehabilitative justice, uh, where you know, just because you fucked up in a violent way doesn't mean you can't improve yourself. Doesn't mean you can't like become a better person. Um, so you should have access to rehabilitation programs to like get yourself straight and on the narrow. And um, eighth is state prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. That's like probably one of the biggest problems people have is the prisons they're in uh, don't have like like have like super long wait lists or they just don't have them at all. Or, like, the what they do have is, like, superly, like, underfunded, and they just can't handle it. Um, and that's kind of contrary to what we supposedly want out of prisons. Like, supposedly, we've transitioned into rehabilitative justice, like, you know, a hundred years ago. But the reality is we fucking have it for shit. Um, and mainly because we're not funding this type, of, like, this type of stuff kind of really shows that. Yeah. Ninth is Pell Grants for, uh, must be reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. This is specifically for uh, education. Like, so when you're in prison, you have a lot of free time. Um, so why the fuck aren't we, like, trying to... And, you know, why aren't we trying to at least give them an education so they can, when they go out of the prison, when they finally serve their time and go out, they have something to use like they have some some sort of education they can use to get a, a job and hopefully a better job than they had last time uh, because again a lot of crime is committed due to poverty because of desperation um, and but if you give someone an education they may not be as desperate anymore and they may not need to commit crimes because they have you know a job that pays more or at least pays enough so that they don't feel a need to commit crime. Um, and lastly, it's probably one of the biggest ones, um, mainly because of how specifically it'll affect politics, uh, is voting rights to be reinstated for all released prisoners, um, specifically ex-felons. Um, in a, there's a lot of states in the United States uh, where if you are committed a felony offense and then you got convicted and then you went to jail and then you got released, you don't get to vote ever again. I'm not kidding you. Your voting rights are taken away, um, and that's. And I know just in Florida they have like hundreds of thousands of people who cannot vote because they're ex-felons. Um, and again, this and you know, surprise, surprise, uh, a lot of them are African American. 
Um, Damn it. Yeah, so, like, I mean, it's, like, this is a weird tactic that, uh, you know, Republicans are able to realize where, hey, we notice black people, like, vote uh, for Democrats, like, almost, like, 93% of the time. Uh, what if we just, like, make them not be able to vote, <laughs> like, when they get out of prison? And they do that, like, and that's very, like, whenever there's a large African-American population, usually there's, like, usually there's, like, uh, ex-felon vote takeaway laws um, that make it impossible for them to vote. Yeah, this is all around dick move, voter suppression, and um, supposedly un-American, but, you know, we don't give a shit about that anymore. It's about power and uh, making oh, yeah, money. It's, it's, it's blatant power for the sake of power. Um, and, yeah, but, no, but once, I mean, I mean, it, it, to be a little, a little lighthearted, I do want these laws to be repealed specifically so I could see politicians fight over the ex-felon voter block. <laughs> yes. They actually go to prison and then they start telling their jail time stories like, oh yeah, I went to county jail once and it was really rough and I, I can relate to you people. <laughs> trying desperately to try desperately to connect with people they have no connection with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that would be some good fucking meme shit. Yeah, like they just go full Bill, uh, Ben Carson on people. <laughs> I almost shot my brother in the head. <laughs> like, yeah, sh- sure you did, Ben. Sure. Uh, well, that would that'd be pretty funny. That would be funny. So, what could we do on the outside to show so- solidarity with our people on the inside? Well, uh, luckily. Um, there are lots of things. Uh, the first thing you can probably do if you're part of an organization of some kind, uh, I know, like, you know, and, you know, or IWW or, you know, any sort of, like, prison relief group or any religious group, um, anything like that, um, you can endorse the uh, – you can endorse this prison strike um, and any subsequent prison strikes and say, like, like though these people are correct, they have a point, uh, stop doing this fucking bullshit um, and just let them be human beings. Um so that's probably the, the first thing you can do. Um, but that's very easy and doesn't require that much work. Um, the rest will. Uh, another thing you do is, um, and one of the big ways of keeping morale is by writing them letters. Uh, if you contact um, the IWC and say, "Hey, we want like we were doing a letter writing campaign. Do you know any people who we should write letters to?" Um, and they'll probably give you uh, a few, a couple of names and addresses, and then you can write letters in support of them. Um, and you know, and then later on, there's you know, contacting uh, local, like local Congress people, um, your state's assembly people, because um, there are state and federal prisons. Um, if like s- telling them like, hey, do you do you not support like this list of demands people have to strike? Um, you know, at least getting them on record saying yes or no that you can then use later. And then there's always like protesting outside, <laughs> protesting outside of prisons, but that might be. A little dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. That's, I mean, I get it, but damn. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's more direct action, but I feel like that I will, it will be illegal for me to say specifics. <laughs> exactly. So, well, let's not get you in jail. Let's, <laughs> let's not get anybody in jail. Let's not go to jail. Let's make sure, hey, people support your brothers and sisters that, that are locked up right now. And um, because they're really fighting for their rights. Thank you, Byron. Thank you for uh, for hosting this wonderful talk. Ooh.
So we're talking about the Black Klansman. Despite so, who, so we're talking about uh, the Dave Chappelle skit, right? <laughs> essentially, essentially. Um, but Black Klansman, directed by Spike Lee, um, is a, essentially about a cop in the 70s in Colorado Springs who infiltrates the, his local Klan chapter. But it just happens that this cop who makes the infiltration phone call happens to be a black guy. And what? so Yeah, I know. <laughs> crazy, right? So um he has one of his fellow officers who just happens to be Jewish as an ethnicity, but maybe not religiously. And um he operates as his avatar. When going to, you know, clan meetings, cross burnings, and other shit that the clan does. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, yeah, it literally was like, what if we did that, like, um, Dave Chappelle sketch, but like, unironically. <laughs> exactly. uh, no, not unironically, but like, you know, if, but if they were an avocado cop. And it, I, this is based on a true story, or at least based on a true story, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, it was based on the book written by Ron Stallworth about his exploits in um, in Colorado Springs. And one of interesting things about the book, and it is reflected in the movie, so spoiler alert, um, the cops shut down the program after it begins bearing fruits against the Klan. I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> why. You know, it's just those budgets, I guess, right? Yeah, just can't. Look, those phone calls are very expensive, okay? Very, very expensive. They had to call collect probably at least once or twice. But um, it's it's an interesting movie. I will say this. Regardless of some of the criticism that is received, and some of it is well-warranted, and I think we're going to get into some of the criticism. It is probably Spike Lee's best movie in a long time. Because Chirac sucked. And Chirac was somewhat offensive. While this is visually very beautiful, um, the characters are more than two-dimensional, and um, the narrative is quite strong. Whether you buy into Spike Lee's overall message or not, that's irrelevant. But... um, it's probably his best movie in at least five to ten years. But enough yeah. of that shit. <laughs> no, we're talking about the, we're talking about all the yeah, uh, all the juicy beef between Boots Riley and the director of this movie. Uh, did you get a chance to see Sergeant Bobby? Yes, I have. It's it's a fucking trip. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. Like when you're not like you know. When you're not like leaving the movie theater, wanted to go unionize your workplace and kill your boss, it's it's also thinking, yeah, that ending was really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, they really get into some magical realism on the ending, which oh, is yeah. fucking amazing. Oh yeah, it plays well. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. While we, to, I guess, to explain the Spike Lee versus Boots Riley beef, Byron, would you care to give a quick synopsis of Sorry to Bother You? 
and then we can kind of juxtapose that shit. All right, so Sorry to Bother You is a movie, is a movie of uh, this one black dude. Um, he works as a, uh, as a uh, telemarketer, um, and then he discovers that by basically imitating a white person's voice, he can, he's more successful and can move higher up in the food chain of this telemarketing firm. Um, he does so. Um, there's, a, there's like a subplot of, of his like more radical girlfriend uh, who's trying to like unionize the telemarketing firm that he was originally from, but as he moves up uh, in the ranks, he kind of becomes more and more alienated and separated from them. Um, eventually, he like gets to the very top, uh, where he like meets the the white, you know, quote unquote woke uh, business leader who wants to turn people into literal slaves and like literal like slaves, where like. They get food, they get shelter, but they're turned out to work for like work for him and his company for the rest of their lives. Um, that's where the kind of it's a little bit of a dystopia at that point. Um, and then he wants to also turn people into fucking like horse centaurs people somehow uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, that's, that's a thing just to really show how fucking weird how fucking weird these like tech bro assholes are and and how much like you know god complex they have. Um, and then he, like, near the end, he kind of realizes, oh, fuck, I fucked up. This is really messed up. Like, I need to go and support, you know, these people. So he does that. But, uh, and, like, you know, they win and there's all this good time. But then he realizes, oh, shit, that motherfucker slipped something in my drink and now I'm becoming a horse centaur. And then he goes back with a bunch of other centaurs and fucking kills the motherfucker. And then the movie ends. <laughs> yes. That is how the movie ends, so you never have to see that movie ever. Sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry. I mean, go fucking watch it. Fucking, I am leaving out a lot. Yeah, there's a lot left out. You even left out the fact that he can keep his horse cock as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so now you get an idea. Sorry to bother you. It's a definitely rooted in labor struggle. It's about a worker. He's having a fucked up time navigating his life being broke. And hijinks ensue versus, all right, I'm a black guy. I always wanted to be a cop. Now I'm going to go after the Klan. So, Boots... And by some weird miracle, no one stops me. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Except for the budget cuts. And then it's it's over. (laughs) It's weird that, like... Like I when I when I was watching the movie, I was like, okay, then, it's, then he's got to go into the clan meeting and fight. Oh shit! There's a bunch of my fellow coworkers here. <laughs> but no, no, they, they did not do that because they would not because no, because of fucking whatever reasons. Exactly, exactly. Even though there were some law enforcement that they kind of discovered in there, which was a big fucking deal, and you got to watch the movie. But anyway, so boots writes like a four-page critique of, and Boots being the director of Sorry to Bother You, wrote a four-page critique of the Black Klansman by Spike Lee. And some of that shit was scathing. Oh, yeah. Especially when it comes to, like, how they portray the cops as, like, a force for, like, an objective force for good. (laughs) Which, you know, when you, like, when you think, when you watch the movie at the top, you don't really think about it, but, like, when, like, Boots Riley mentions in the essay, it's like, oh, shit, he's right. <laughs> they are portrayed as, like, an objective good. 
Yeah, and it kind of perpetuates the idea of like, you know, not all cops are bad. Look at them. They're fighting the Klan. And even though yeah. you work with a racist guy, generally the institution's still good. Yeah. They, they forget the main mantra of all cops are bastards. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I don't know if that was Spike Lee's intention. I know in some of Boots' critique, he kind of hints that it might have been. Um, I don't. I don't like to speculate on shit and people's intention because you know, a lot of times you do that shit, you're ass wrong, and then Spike Lee will come out and he'll come on this podcast and say, "Brandon, you're a motherfucking liar." Spike Lee, please refute me if that's the case. But um, I don't like to speculate that that's what he was trying to do. But you do get the concept of the cops are kind of good, but I think Spike would have kind of answered back as he tried to create tension by having this question of, can you change the system from the inside? Can you be a cop, be a good cop, and fight these battles, like fight the Klan? Obviously, there was no fighting capitalism in there, but it was kind of hinted a little bit in Black Klansmen. But can you make change from the inside? What do you think, Byron? I mean, I think that's maybe what he's going for, but he should fucking know better. <laughs> it's like, like he's, like, with his history and, like, all the fucking, like, just the amount of history he, like, of, like, of, like actual, like, you know, history, history, um, that he knows about the police just do just, like, being as, you know, a black person growing up, especially as someone who's in his position, um, a relative, you know, wealth and, like, just knowing shit um, just over time, especially because, like, he's, get, he's getting pretty old now, right? Yeah. How old is he now? Uh, you know what? I don't know. 50s? He's, yeah, he's definitely 50s. He's not 60s. He's, like, my dad's age. Yeah, he's, he's like, a millennial's dad's age. Um, like, he should fucking know better. Like, like this, it is, it's not a reformable institution. Uh, but, um, you know, especially after fucking making Malcolm fucking X, like, <laughs> like, holy shit, like the fucking goal, um, like he should know better. But then again, like he got like 200,000 bucks from the NYPD, uh, New York police department to basically make a fucking ad campaign for them. Um, he fucking wears a, like. Oh, we gotta protect uh, Robert Mueller. He's one of those guys. Uh, he's one of those resistance donut assholes. Uh, we need to protect <laughs> Mueller because he's gonna go after Trump and the Russians. Um, and like, I don't know. I think just at at this point right now, um, he kind of showed his hand that he's not as radical or well connected into radical spaces as he may have thought he was. I know he has fictional love interest in this movie, the Black Klansman, the lead character. Um, Black, the Black Panther, yeah. Wait. Oh, wait, wait, which one are we talking about? No, Black Klansman. Yeah, she, she's a Black Panther, yeah. Yeah, she's a Black Panther. Um, but, she's, but she's showed to be, like, not as entirely correct. It's like, she literally does that whole, like, police are a fucked up institution, and he's like, well, not really. Like, that's literally a fucking, like, actual scene in the fucking movie. That is an actual scene in the fucking movie. Um, 
I like to think that because she's also like a student, she's smart, but they also try to make her a little naive about things. But at the she's same, she's a student. Yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Exactly. She's naive. She's naive, but she does hit him with some truth bombs every once in a while. And he's like, hmm, I don't know. I got a question. You know, do I really deserve this pussy? Which, by the way, no one deserves any pussy. But, you know, save me, save me, save me, Byron. <laughs> now you dug this all for yourself. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he's trying, to, he's trying to maintain, he's trying to stay in the saddle, if you know what I mean. You know, she actually says, I don't know if I can be with a cop. I'm against that shit, morally. And um, he's trying to stay in the saddle. And then he kind of reveals, which I don't think a cop's supposed to reveal in their investigation, that I'm an undercover cop and I'm working, I'm fighting the Klan. No, that's that's like that's like fucking James Bond constantly revealing he's a fucking secret agent just to get laid. Like, no, that's like, you don't do that. <laughs> exactly. You're not supposed to do that. It's, it's, it's just, it's tacky, number one. And number two... It's bad OPSEC. Yeah, yeah. So what's going to happen? Like, if she happens to be wired or something, now you you, you audit yourself. But anyway, whatever. Um, especially with the amount of police infiltration in the, Bla- in the Black Panthers, like, it'll probably just get around to the cops, and the cops will know, hey, you're not good at this. Stop. <laughs> you're not good at this. And... Did it, I think, actually, funny enough, in the movie, there was a part where they kind of called him out. as like, yo, dude, you went to this Black Panther meeting and saw Stokely Carmichael, and uh, you're getting all frenzy and falling in love with this chick. What the, what gives? Should we pull you off the case? And maybe they should have. But in real life, it, that did not happen because the chick was not there. The actual guy wasn't as sloppy as Spike Lee's version of this guy. Actually, yeah. Actually, think about it now. The, like, there, there wasn't a woman in the actual original book this was, was based on, right? She never existed. She's purely fictional. So she's purely fictional for the purpose of, one, having a romantic interest, which is like a weird checkbox we need to check off every fucking time we make a movie, um, and two, to like be the performatively woke aspect of, yeah, of, of, of Spike Lee. Like, she literally exists to, like, be fucked and to, like, be the performatively woke voice of him. That's literally her existence of, for the movie. Exactly. Holy shit, I just realized that. And another It's really little, fucked up. It is kind of fucked up. And here's another little tidbit, too. Um, his avatar, who in the movie is Jewish wasn't really Jewish in real life. And I read a review on this by, like, the Times of Israel. Because this guy was Jewish in the movie, and he's like, I don't have skin in this game. You know, it's just a job for me. It's a crusade for you, Mr. Black Man. And he's like, the fuck you don't have any, you know, skin in this game. So, all right, so you have this character that wasn't Jewish, but you made him Jewish, and... It's almost like Spike Lee, which is maybe noble, trying to encourage some type of solidarity amongst Jews and black folks. Because, yeah, all right, anti-Semitism is real. Anti-blackness is real. You do have fucking skin in the game. Yeah, I mean, like, 
I, I do find it interesting. It, it does make the movie ultimately more interesting in, in a good way, um, making that connection. Ultimately, all right, this is what I think about Black Klansman. Is it a must-see? Not a must-see, but you should see it. And you should see it from a perspective of, all right, this is somebody who is comfortable making movies about race and really going kind of ham-fisted on, hey, this shit's real, and not much has really changed from 1972 to 2018. He makes that connection by bringing in real footage of the whole Charlottesville Unite the Right mayhem. So I would check that out. Emotionally and visually, it's a good movie, although it may be problematic with this politics. And then after you watch that movie, go see Boots Riley's movie. Sorry to bother you. Because that movie's Real good shit. Yeah. Yeah, folks, what are you doing listening to us? Go to the fucking movies. (laughs) We'll talk to you later. Go to movies and you can't do that. First of all, I just want to remind all of you guys to follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color. Also, we got some treats on our Patreon page, so become a supporter. Go to www.patreon.com backslash movement of color. My name is Brandon Payton Carrillo. Adios. Adios.